There are several great chapter nines in the Bible. I'm not, a, I'm not talking about numerology or anything like that. But there are several great nine, chapter nines in the Bible. For example, Daniel chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. And here we have Dan, uh, Nehemiah chapter 9. Each of them have their context in revival. The great evangelist D.L. Moody thought the next revival would come after his day would come as a revival in the word of God, God's word. The great missionary Paul wrote in Romans 10, so then faith comes by what? Hearing. hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. Now, Nehemiah 8, if you remember from last week, Nehemiah 8 was a lengthy reading of God's word, which is a reminder of things that they had not heard in nearly a thousand years. Remember, since the days of Jeshua, Joshua, nearly a thousand years, they have not heard this. They've not dealt, dwelt in tents, this Feast of the Tabernacles, remember that whole thing. So they're hearing things that like, like for the first time, but it was written a thousand years ago, and as the result, the people wept and mourned in recognition of just how far, when they look around, just how far we have drifted from where God wants us to be. Their response now to this ongoing reading of God's word includes the longest prayer in the Bible, Nehemiah chapter 9, and it takes place right in the middle of the revival, chapter 8, 9, and 10. Let's consider the elements of this prayer, especially as it relates to revival. Whatever else prayer is, wrote Harry Ironside, we need to first of all hear from God, hear God speaking so that we may then rightly speak to God. I think often, and I don't want to get off on this, but I think often we rush to prayer without ever having heard from God. And there is an old saying that goes this way. The more important a person, or yes, the more important a person we are in the presence of, the less we should speak. Now, don't get off on politics, but if you, if you walked into the presence of some, you know, famous person, a politician or whatever, are you going to blurt out everything that's on your mind? Well, you shouldn't. It's rude. You probably want to listen a little bit. And if you're going to go to God in prayer, ask yourself, have you heard anything from God lately? Because oftentimes our prayers are only one-sided, as if God doesn't know what's going on. Maybe we need to listen a little more, but that's for another time. How we approach God makes all the difference in our prayer. So then, does this kind of prayer, I mean, what does this kind of prayer look like? Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, in the 20 and 4th day of the month, of, uh, of the month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting, with sackcloth, and earth upon it. You've heard the phrase sackcloth and ashes, right? And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of, we don't know, last week it was like a whole, what, it was a week and a day or something, how long this is going on. They read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one fourth part of the day and another fourth part they confessed and worshiped. 12-hour day, night doesn't count. 12-hour day, a fourth part of that is what? And, and I'll be lucky to keep your attention until 1130, right? Man, 
a fourth part of the day, and worshiped the Lord their God. We have to start with, when we go to prayer, we have to start by looking within, right? So what does it look like? Look within, first of all. Let's start with an examination of our heart, just like we do when we come to communion. We pause to look within, right? This fasting and sackcloth, this was symbolic of the sorrow for sin, the hum- humility that's required and the struggles of life. By the time you get down to verse 37, it says, we are in great distress, In the context of revival, no proud spirit can exist. You know the words, James chapter 4, God resisteth the proud and he gives grace to the humble. The next time you're facing some significant decision or need of spiritual guidance in your life, consider this. What are they doing? How does it begin? It begins with fasting. Now, I don't want to get off on a conversation that some of you might think is weird or strange, but I hope that you don't think of the word fasting as a strange idea. It's, it's a, actually a good idea. It's, there's some health to it as well, but, but it's, a, it's a good thing. And it doesn't have to be just with food. But consider fasting as you read God's word and pray. It could be skipping out on a, you know, a cup of coffee. And instead of that coffee, you pick up the Bible. Now, I know that's just a little thing, but you look into the good book into God's word rather than just relying on a cup of coffee or maybe some dessert you're going to say okay this week no dessert there's some help to that as well right but you're but you're giving up something that you're saying in your mind it's something that's going to remind me of my need for the Lord because we spend a lot of time in this world working through our troubles and 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 trying to make things work and we don't spend a lot of time with God and his word so I would just suggest to you it's, it's a good idea to keep it in mind, and it will bring your heart and, and mind and soul in, uh, in humility before the Lord. Then there's another sense of separation. You see it there, verse 2, and it said they separated themselves from all strangers. These aren't strange-looking people. It's like Martians. I don't want to hang out with Martians. But it means people that have strange beliefs, so they have other gods, right? And they're, they're ungodly behavior. So I'm going to separate from them. But the principle of unequal yoke, which Paul contrasts as fellowship with darkness, you know, what, what fellowship does light have with darkness, right? So there, there really shouldn't be a lot of comfort. When you think about the ungodly, the unsaved, there shouldn't be a lot of places we find ourselves really comfortable in the world in that regard. Just remember this, though. We don't go around looking for and saying, well, you're a stranger in the sense of, well, you're not a Christian. Well, you Be careful about only ever separating yourself from the world. The sense of it is separating ourselves to the Lord. You might say, well, what's the difference? There's, a, there's some difference. If, if you only ever say, well, I'm not going to hang out with these people, or those, no, 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 no. What good have you accomplished? I I don't know. But if you say, I'm going to live for the Lord, I'm going to speak for the Lord, I'm going to separate from that kind of conversation, that's not going to be my way of life. I'm going to live in such a way that honors the Lord. What's going to happen to all the, as they identify them here, the strangers? What's going to happen? Well, they're not going to be, they're not going to be found at your, at your party. They're not going to, you know, they're just not going to hang out with you. you. You have a conversation, a way of life that's different from theirs. 
Be careful about separating from. It's more about separating unto. We spend a lot of time navigating our way in the present world and very little in building our relationship with the Lord. That's what it's about. That's what separation is. Revival comes first by humiliation before a holy God. Second, by separation unto a holy God. But then also, as you continue on in verse 2, there is confession of their sin. And notice the iniquities of their fathers. That's an interesting not just my sins, but the iniquities of my fathers as well. What, is my, what, is my, what does my dad have to do with it? Confession is not because I got caught in some random act of disobedience. And sometimes that's all we think of. Well, I got caught, so, you know, yep, I did it. I'm wrong. You know, forgive me. That, that's not what confession is. You got caught. You did it. It's wrong. And you, and you ought to say you're sorry. But confession is a recognition that but for the grace of God, there go I. Confession is a recognition that goes back to my fathers and my ancestors and goes all the way back to who? Adam. To understand that death has passed upon all men because all have sinned. It's not because of my latest failure that I confess. It's because I know the nature of my heart that I confess. That apart from God, apart from his Holy Spirit, Apart from the work he has done in my life, right? Confession and how quickly we can fall into sin. If you tell me you haven't heard from the Lord lately, or maybe, no, maybe you would tell me you have heard from the Lord, or, or you know, like God, God spoke to me. There's, there is something that I will ask you. Where can you confirm that for me in the word of God? Because you see it right here in verse 3, a confirmation. They stood up in their place. They read from the book of the law. This is where it's happening. What is the law but the record of all that God had done for them, which they read for a quarter part of the day, a 12-hour day, three hours, confirmation of all that God is and what he has done for us will always strengthen our faith and prepare us to hear from heaven. Looking within, we've begun our prayer of revival, and now I would encourage you, we're in the right place. Our heart's right with God. We confessed our sins. We're humble before him. I would encourage you then to look up, right? Verse 4. So then they stood upon the stairs of the Levites and Jeshua, and you can read the names. And they cried with a loud voice unto the Lord their God. And the Levites, again, Jeshua and the names. And they stand up, so they're all standing up, and they bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and blessed be thy glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein. And thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. By the way, that is an argument of creation Paul uses that same argument. Every time he presents the gospel, he begins with creation. When you undermine a creator God, you are undermining his word. You are undermining every subsequent act that he's ever done. Every truth of God and his word is now undermined when you don't start with a creator God. If you're not willing to accept that, well, looking up, they cried out, and the Old Testament definition of prayer is simply crying out. 
When you cry out to God, what's your view? He's personal. Verse 4 says, the Lord their God. Verse 5, bless the Lord your God. Verse 6, this one who is the host of heavens is my God. Much of this world's philosophy and even contemporary Christianity is an attempt to lower God, bring God down, you know, to the people, right? Want to want to bring God down to where I am. I'm sorry, but I don't want God down where I am. I want to be up where God is, right? He, he's going to, everything about the message of God is to pick us up out of the horrible pit and set our feet on the rock to stay. I don't, I don't need God in the mud. I need me to be out of it, right? That's the nature of a personal God. Not that he's going to come and live in the muck and mire, but he's going to give me hope and chance. God is not only personal, he's also powerful. Verse 5 says, Thy glorious name, which is exalted above all the blessing and praise. As it say in Psalm 29, Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Looking up, I consider the heavens. The work of thy fingers, the moon, the stars which thou hast ordained. And I ask myself, what am I? What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that you would visit him. And if God created all this, don't you think he's going to care for it? Yeah? So he's the preserver. And so that's what verse 6 is about. Toward the end of it, thou preservest them all. He can take care of you. Do you believe that? If, if you don't believe that he's the creator, the sustainer, the preserver of all of this, if, if you're not certain that God is in control and then a problem comes up in your life, are you going to be certain that he's going to control that? That, he's, that he, maybe he, I'm not sure, right? Old man in the mountain, a little illustration. When visiting the old man in the mountains, New Hampshire, uh, White Mountains, Tourists look eagerly at, the, at this little space there, and uh, you're supposed to be able to see this old man in the mountain. Anybody ever been there? You've seen it? I, I've not. I've seen pictures. But when you look at it, you have to look at it just exactly right. You know, the light's got to be right. <laughs> and it's carved out by time and chance and all that, right? So there's this, you get the lighting right and, and the view of it right, and you see this old man in the mountain. And you say, that's carved by chance, right? On the other hand, if you went to South Dakota, you came upon a mountain with the unmistakable likeness of four American presidents. Is there anybody that would say, boy, that, that must have been carved by time and chance. I wonder how that happened. When you see those carvings, you say to yourself, there was somebody who carved it a creator now you look at the old man in the white mountains in new hampshire you might say that's time and chance but when you see something so clever as this you'd say no that's that's by a design it is unmistakable that when you look in the world and all the beauty of this world and the detail i mean you go down into the detail of this world and creation it's undeniable it's not by chance there's a creator behind it. Well, looking up, I see God. I don't know what you see. If you still can't see God at work, consider looking back. If you don't have a lot of stories of your own life and how God has worked, maybe you can look back upon the stories of others. This perspective is the bulk of the prayer. It helps to build my confidence in God's ability to care for my present circumstance. Looking back, and he gives three 
great names that you're going to remember. First of all, Ezra mentioned, Ezra is the preacher on this. Ezra gives a declaration of Abraham in verse 7. Thou art, thou art the Lord, the God who chose who? There he is, Abraham, Abram. And brought him forth out of the earth of the Chaldees and gave us him the name of Abraham and foundest his heart faithful before thee and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, and all the land that, by the way, is, is in the news today, the Perizzites and Jebusites, and to give it, I say, to his seed, and has performed thy words, for thou art righteous. This declaration was not that Abraham was righteous, but that Abraham believed in the righteousness and promise of God. Looking back, my confidence in the Lord, who by the end of verse 8 performed his words, which is to say he kept all his promises to Abraham. That's a God I can trust. When Paul reviewed the declaration of Abraham, he wrote in Romans chapter 4, Paul wrote that his belief in the promise of God was imputed to him for righteousness. And he went on to say the same is true for us who look back on the empty tomb and we believe that God has kept his promise of all the ages has now been kept in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a God in whom I can put my faith. You believe that God has raised him up from the dead? Romans 10, thou shalt be saved. Looking back, Ezra also reviewed the deliverance of Moses. This one goes on for a time. Verse 9 and did see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard us their cry by the Red Sea. So now we're, we're in the life of Moses and showed signs and wonders to Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of the land. Do you know this story? You know, was a, I, I think for the most part I still can, but there was a time when I could mention stories like this from the pulpit and I could assume everybody knew them. But we don't have Sunday schools anymore that you know, teach all these beautiful Anybody with me when, when I say, I still remember the stories from the flannel graph, right? Now, I'm not saying that's the best way to present the story. I'm just saying that the stories were presented to me so that when I sat in a service like this and the preacher said something about Moses, I remembered Moses. When the preacher said something about the, the Pharaoh and how he rejected how many times and all the curses that were upon him as a result, and then let my people go, and then, no, oh, you're not going to go, and then he comes back and, and you know the whole story. Well, hopefully you do. And thou didst divide the sea before them, remember as they crossed over, so that they went through, verse 11, they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and the persecutors thou threw us into the deeps as the stone into the mighty water, so they're all drowned. Moreover, thou ledest them in the day by cloudy, remember the pillar of the cloud by day and pillar of fire by night, do you remember that story? You came down also upon Mount Sinai and you spake with them from heaven. Now what is that about? What, what was given there? Right? And, and you made known unto them the holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts and statutes and laws by the hand of Moses thy servant. You gave them, remember they said, we want you to read from the law. Right? So this is what they're hearing as the book is being read for three hours a day. But they and their fathers dealt proudly and hardened their necks and hearkened not to thy commandments, verse 16. 
and refused to obey. So after all they had seen, after all they had been through, it was like, thank you, God, we got it from here, and they disobeyed. And yet God is ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and he would never forsake them. So you're looking back on a story like this, and from a story like this, you're beginning to understand that if he wouldn't forsake people like that, he won't forsake me, right? That's the sense of it. Yea, and when they had made them a molten calf, you remember that? Moses came down, took up all the rings and chains and everything, made this calf. They brought thee up out of Egypt and had wrought precious provo or great provocations. Yet thou in thy manifold mercies forsook them not in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night. Now this is all the wanderings in the wilderness, but God didn't forsake them. Thou gavest them also thy good spirit to in instruct them and with withheld us not thy manna from heaven. Remember the manna to feed them and gave them water for thirst. This is all the wanderings in the wilderness. And for 40 years thou didst sustain them. You might look at the history and say they were forsaken. No, they're punished. But God has not forsaken them. So that they lack nothing, they're closed. And this is a little miracle that, you know, a little boy, when, when his teacher showing him on a flannel graph, he said, how did that happen? I don't know. But the Lord saw to it that the, the clothes didn't wear out. And, they, and I don't know, are they still wearing the same shoes they started out? I, I have no idea, but it looks like in some miraculous way God has cared for them. This is how God first made a name for himself among all the nations. He raised up for himself a people. Never before or since have people been so cared for as in the days of Moses. God did not forsake Israel in the day of the rebellion. God will not forsake you, for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what man might do unto me. Hebrews chapter 13. Well, looking back, you've seen the declaration of Abraham, the deliverance of Moses. Look at the determination. And this is the next guy we're going to go to after Nehemiah. After the new year, we're going to go into the book of Joshua, verse 22, moreover, thou gavest them kingdoms and nations. Remember, they wanted to be like everybody else. We want to have a king. We want to, we want to have walls that protect us, just like everybody else. And didst divide them into corners, so they possessed the land of Shion, and the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. And their children also multiplied thou as the stars of the heaven, and broughtest them into the land concerning which thou hast promised to their fathers, that they should possess it. So the children went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land of the Canaanites, which, which gave us them into their hands and with their kings and the people. Remember, this isn't Moses now, because what did Moses do? A very simple thing, but it was a frustrated moment. And for a single frustrated moment, he did what? Struck the rock. Now, who among us would say, because you struck the rock, you can't go into the promised land? We'd say, oh, well, you know, it was a, it was a tough moment. I'd have probably done the same thing. It's okay, Moses. Come on. Uh, and so they took strong cities and fat and uh, possessed the houses full of goods, wells digged, vineyards and olive yards and fruit trees in abundance. So they did eat and were filled and became fat. 
and delighted themselves in great goodness. And it might be when they got fat that they kind of got off track. This is Joshua. Don't forget that Joshua had to wander in the wilderness, and it was through no fault of his own, really. My friend, that unfair circumstance that you might be facing right now or that you will or have gone through, and you would say, well, it's no fault of mine, but it may be met with delayed in response from God. But looking back on stories like this, you can be certain you are not forsaken. God has not overlooked your circumstance. He knows what you're going through. And he'll help you as he has helped those before you. Looking back, we can begin to see a pattern of God's work in our life. Begins to build a confidence for the future. And the God of Abraham, Moses, Joshua, is that your God? Can you see the handiwork of God in your life? Consider that, how that may change the way you pray. A confidence in God that he will see you through. Well, then looking around in verse 26, looking around, what do we see? A lot of trouble, a lot of strife. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. I mean, and we'll say that about our kids one day, right? You, you, you become parents and we say, how can my kids do that? After all, after all I gave them? When do we say things like that? I, what would God have said? Nevertheless, after all I've done for them, they were disobedient and rebelled against thee and cast thy law behind their backs and slew thy prophets which testified against them to turn them to thee. And they wrought great provocations even to this day. Therefore thou deliverest them into the hand of their enemies who vexed them. And in the time of their trouble when they cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven. And according to thy manifold mercies, Thou gavest them saviors who saved them out of the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, what does it say, verse, 20, what? verse 28? What does it say again? They did evil again. I mean, therefore leftest thou them in the hand of their enemies so that they had the dominion, so that the enemy had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven, and many times thou didst deliver them according to thy God mercies. And testifiest against them, thou mightest bring them again to thy law, yet they dealt proudly and hearkened not. Remember, this is Ezra preaching to the people after they've read in the law words they haven't heard for a thousand years of how disobedient they've been and yet how God has watched over them. But they sinned against thy judgments. Which, if a man do, he shall live in them. So in the judgments. And withdrew the shoulder and hardened their neck and would not hear. They wouldn't listen. Yet many years didst thou forbear them and testifiest against them by thy spirit in the prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore gavest thou them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them. For thou art a gracious and merciful God. 
Well, first of all, when you look around, you see the trouble they've brought on themselves. God must sometimes deal with us according to the stubbornness of our own heart. God wanted to deal with them according to his manifold mercies. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebellious. Looking around, we also see the testimony that often condemns us. All this trouble, the middle of verse 32, had come upon them because while the promises of God are sure, his benefits, his blessings are not irrevocable. As a nation, we ought to remember this. While God wants to deal with us according to his abundant mercies, his blessings upon us are not irrevocable. When troubles come, what's your first response? Do you look around for somebody to blame? Some other nation? Some other people? Some other whatever? Do you declare it's not fair? Or is there something God's trying to teach you? Chuck Colson calls this present age in which we live, this present society, the golden age of exoneration. The golden age of exoneration. What does that mean? Nobody's guilty of anything. We've all got somebody else to blame, right? It's somebody else's fault. It must be my parents. It must have been that Sunday school teacher. It must be everybody's got somebody to blame, and nobody takes responsibility. And so John concludes, we think we have need of nothing and we don't even know that we're poor and wretched and miserable and blind and naked because we're still blaming somebody else. Looking around, we also see a a truce that they declared. I'll take you down to verse 36. Behold, we are servants this day for the land that thou gavest to our fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof. Behold, we are the servants. We're going to commit ourselves to this. And it yieldeth much increase into the kings whom thou hast set over us because of our sins. Also they have dominion over our bodies and over our cattle at their pleasure. And we are in distress even to this day. We would say they made peace with it, right? They, they've, they've come to pe- they come to terms with it. No more blaming someone else. No more denial of their condition, no more running from the truth, but a complete surrender. And in their distress, they promised to obey God. If you wait until things change to promise that you will obey God, you never will. You'll live a life of disobedience so long as you're waiting for something to change. Matthew Henry wrote, it becomes us. When we are under the rebuke of divine providence, though ever so sharp and ever so long to justify God and to judge ourselves, God is just. I am the sinner. And then one last verse looking ahead. Verse 38. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant. We write it down. We sign our name to it, and we seal ourselves unto it. This is like an amen to their prayer. 
Their confidence was now sure that regardless of the circumstance, if nothing else changed, obedience to God is still the best. And that's a terrific but a, a very difficult uh, principle to learn. That if nothing else changes, my obedience to God and his word is still the best. So before anything changed, they were confident it would be better if they did it God's way. And because of this, they, they made this covenant. The terms of the covenant will be seen in chapter 10, in the next chapter. And, uh, and so before knowing how it would all turn out, they went now on record to say they're going to be obedient. They made a public promise, and we're, we're willing to be held accountable to this. And to this record, they wrote and sealed their names, which speaks of their commitment. Think of all the things you've committed yourself to in life. And I, I, am, I am often amazed. I just had a Bible study on Friday morning. And it was talking about, uh, you know, let your yay be yay and your nay be nay and all that sort of stuff. And then somebody wants to say, yeah, that's why we don't, we don't promise to. Like, really? You don't promise to do anything? <laughs> you never have? No, I just let my yay be yay, my nay be nay. Uh, when you got your mortgage, how did that work out for you? Uh, when you get your electric bill, do you just say, well, you know, I just, I don't have, I don't have enough money this time to pay it. We commit to a lot of things in this world. And somehow our commitment to God is optional. What kind of covenant have you made with God? Do you take God at his word? Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. Do you make your decisions based upon God's promises? Or your problems? Is your salvation based upon your feelings? For your faith in God. When you begin to pray, look within and examine your own self. Look up and see the greatness of God. Don't think too highly of yourself. Look back and see what God has done for others and know that he'll care for me too. Look around and see if perhaps you have brought some of this trouble on yourself or just made everything worse by your own disobedience. And always look ahead knowing that God is able to see you through.